We have the honor and privilege of opening up God's Word tonight as we continue through the Psalms. We've been out of them for quite a while, and we return to Psalm 44. So if you would open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 44 as we continue psalm by psalm to go through the Psalter. Psalm 44, of course, is what we call a lament psalm, one of many in the overall Psalter of Israel. A lament psalm is so-called because it contains cries for Yahweh's help in the midst of some kind of crisis of His people. And there are actually whole psalms full of lament, for instance, like Psalm 44 and uh, others, including, for instance, Psalms 22 and 74 and 88 and Psalm 130, just to name a few. And there are those that are not lament psalms as a whole, but maybe psalms where there is either no lament at all, which would mean, of course, that it's not a lament psalm. Or there might be some psalms that have a few lament verses, we could say, that are scattered throughout a particular psalm. But on the whole, there are certainly enough passages, whether in the whole or in the part, in which there are laments, cries of God's people that make it so very valuable teaching for us on the theme of lament or suffering. Psalm 44 most definitely gives us some wonderfully helpful instruction on suffering and God's steadfast love, the love of His children. Let me see if I can give you an overall sense of what Psalm 44 is about, including its basic structure, and then seek possibly to give all of us what I hope to be real encouragement in the midst of our own cries to our God for sure help in time of need. In order for us to do that, I want us to bow together before the Lord, and then we'll read Psalm 44, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray together. Father, one of the characteristic aspects of these lament psalms from our perspective is that so many of them, when they cry out to you for help, that's a prayer. It certainly is a song to be sung, and they have, as psalms, been sung throughout the ages, not just the nation of Israel, but also Christians throughout the centuries have sung these songs, even these songs of lament, and they also are songs to be prayed. And we cry out to you to give us guidance and wisdom, give us illumination. But even more than that, Heavenly Father, we ask that in a psalm like this, Psalm 44, we can turn in our corporate time of prayer into intercession for our brothers and sisters as we cry out to you regarding our needs. We love you and we ask that you would grant us a wonderful time in your word tonight, and then as we pray together as a body, we pray that not only you would be honored, but that we would be encouraged and helped, and that we would be given much wisdom even when there are those times when we don't know what your plan is, we don't know why things are happening as they are, but one thing that we certainly can take great courage and great encouragement for is that even in these laments, we are still crying out to you for the answers to our prayers. And we pray that you would be honored as we open up the Word of God, your Word, to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to Psalm 44. To the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. 
For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through you, your name we tread, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not neglect us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We read that psalm, of course, this morning, but some of you were not here, and you are here tonight, and it is greatly beneficial for us to read it again. And while there are several clear divisions in Psalm 44, I just want to give us two main ones. We may talk about some in these two main divisions, but I want us to look at these two and to really do some meditation and some thinking through about the seriousness and the importance of these two outline points because they are clear. Verses 1 to 8, verses 1 to 8 is what I call gratitude to God for past help. Gratitude to God for past help. And then in verses 9 to 26, our second outline point of the evening, groping for answers from God for future help. Groping for answers from God for future help, or maybe even present and future help. Let's look at the first one, verses 1 to 8, gratitude to God for past help. If you followed along with me as I read the first eight verses of Psalm 44, you have really two sections within that psalm that divide up nicely. First, verses 1 to 3. And what we find there, this mascal, some kind of term of uh, musical piece or uh, some kind of uh, term that the choir master would know as he leads the people of God in this song, the sons of Korah who are leading this dirge, as it were, in the first three verses, you have what we might call a collective sense of the people of God singing in unison. And then from verse 4 through verse 16, 
you have maybe their representative, possibly their king. Maybe not King David, or else it might have been actually mentioned, but a king of Israel, and he's talking on behalf of the people as their representative. So the first three verses you have in Psalm 44, a collective song to the Lord, and it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, it's triumphant, it's encouraging. And here's what the people of God say, verse 1, O God, we, notice that, the collective we, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Now, where is this? When is this? Well, of course, this is a song of the history of Israel. This is God bringing to the people of God in the present day the kind of hallowing of God's name and the kind of encouragement that God has given their forefathers about how he delivered them, about how he loved them, how he protected them. It's, it's so clear. It's almost as though these who are singing this song are remembering back to the day when they were sitting on their father's lap and their father said, let me tell you a story. And the story is this, I'm going to brag about our God. I'm going to praise his name. I'm going to give you my son, my grandson, my daughter, my granddaughter. I'm going to give you a sense of how our God delivered us, his people, how he won our battles, how we were delivered from our enemies. Let me just tell you about it. Isn't that verse 1? Oh God, we have heard with our ears the present speakers, the present singers. Our fathers have told us. What did they tell us? Well, the deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Verse 2, you with your own hand, speaking of the Lord and his hand. Now, of course, we know that's an anthropomorphism. The Lord doesn't have a hand but we know what is being referred to there. Uh, The Lord's own might, his hand. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, the marauding band that came to destroy us as Israel. And with your hand, with your sovereign power and might, you drove out the nations. But them, our forefathers, you planted. You kept them in their place, and in their place they prospered. This is a great song of praise, isn't it? You say, well, I thought you said this was a a lament song. Well, it's going to get there soon enough. But right now, they're thinking of God's past help, and they're speaking of their gratitude to God. And it's a kind of discipleship, isn't it? It's a discipleship of listening and remembering to what their fathers, their forefathers taught them through the generations about the faithfulness of God and about their gratitude to God for his past help. Look at verse 3, or the end of the latter part of verse 2. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, the peoples who were trying to destroy us. But them, our fathers, you set free. Now, isn't this ironic because some other psalms talk in the reverse about the fact that we are the ones who are finding the difficulties, we're the ones who are being beaten down, we're the ones who are losing in battle, and the others are being planted, and the others who are against us are being set free, but not here, not at least in these verses. Verse 3, For not by their own sword, even the sword of our fathers, our forefathers, did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand, a symbol of might and power, and your arm, your strength, and the light of your face, uh, the, the sense that you were for us, your countenance was lifted up, the light of your face. Why? For what purpose? What reason? The last verse, half verse of verse 3, for you delighted in them. Your delight, your covenant love. This is 
crucial, critical discipleship. And they learned and they remembered very well. They're rehearsing the past acts of God and they're giving gratitude to God because of it. And do you know where all of this started? Do you remember back in Deuteronomy? Turn, turn back there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 4. The fathers, the patriarchs of old would tell their children and grandchildren how gracious and how mighty God had been to them in blessing them and protecting them from harm. And then even God himself, through the pen of Moses, was commanding these fathers to in fact sit down with their children and put their children on their lap and tell them about the great exploits of our God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. It says, only take care, this is Moses to the children of Israel, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. See the discipleship? And it doesn't end there. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You say, well, yeah, that's easy. What he's telling them is all the things that they are receiving by way of Pentateuchal teaching, the the teaching of the Pentateuch. It doesn't say anything about psalms here. Well, guess what the psalms are? The psalms, in one sense, are nothing but the rehearsing of the great acts of God. And we are learning from the Pentateuch the principles, and we're singing the principles in the book of Psalms. And it doesn't end even here. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is yet another. And I'm only showing you a couple. There there are more, of course, but in chapter 11, verse 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. This is amazing. And when you get to the Psalms, it's the teaching in poetic fashion. It's singing. It's praising. It's praying. That's why when you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, you're saying, we're not only remembering, but we're honoring our fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers because they taught us so well that we ought to have great gratitude to our God for the help that they received in the past. And that gives you and me great precedent for continued trust. It should. Most certainly should. And then, as though this was a chorus, these three verses, that all are to sing together And then the king of Israel takes the mic. And notice what he begins to say in verse 4. 
You, referring to his God, you are my king, O God. So the king talks to the greater king. He sings to him and he says, command or ordain or bring salvation for Jacob. It's actually a a command. He's not telling God what to do, but he's saying, "We're, we're in such need of present help and future help as a people. We want to borrow off those great days of old, and we want you to continue to bring your deliverance, your salvation to Jacob. That's another name for Israel. Verse 5, through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. This is what we are forced to do when there are those who come against us. And isn't it true that in the history of the Jewish people, they are almost always in constant fear of the encroaching enemies all around them. If you were ever in Israel, the state of Israel, the land we call holy, and you were to see a map or be there in person, it is a small piece of territory, and it is bounded by an ocean on one side and all their enemies on every other side. And they are constantly under vigilant watch because those enemies would rather destroy them at a moment's notice. No wonder they sing songs like this. No wonder they plead in a commanding way through their songs, ordain deliverance for Jacob. And I I love verse 6. Because they're acknowledging the power of God, and it's God's power, not their own human physical weaponry that destroys the enemy. Verse 6, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. That doesn't mean they're not doing anything. It doesn't mean that they have a sword. It doesn't mean that they have a bow, and they're leaning on those for a break so that God would do the rest. No, they're they're actively involved. They've got their bows. They've got their swords. They're trying to do everything to win the battle, but they know ultimately it transcends their physical ability to win. God must be in charge. He must be for us. He must be behind our victories. Verse 7, but you have saved us from our foes and put to shame those who hate us. So what do they do? Well, of course, verse 8, in God we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Selah, maybe a musical interlude. Pause. You know how sometimes these classic songs will give us the opportunity to sing collectively? And then when there's a musical interlude where there's just the music with no words, we're to stop. Listen. Meditate. Think about the song lyrics that we just sang. And I think that's probably no different here. This is all wonderful. First eight verses. No, no lament there per se. And Selah, a reflection. Look at what God has promised. Look at how good God is to us and how grateful we ought to be. You know what it reminds me of? This this section, verses 1 to 8, reminds me of Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Let me read it to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, Jesus says, receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, referring to earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, your heavenly Father, your Father who is in heaven, give good gifts 
good things to those who ask him. This is, this is what they're doing. They're saying, ordain salvation for, for Jacob, for Israel. We're asking you for bread. Please, Lord, don't, don't give us a stone. We're asking you for fish. Please don't give us a serpent. We're asking. We're seeking. We're knocking. By the way, when you're ever stumped in prayer, you don't really know what to say next, just use the acronym ASK, Ask, Seek, and Knock. The Father delights in our asking and seeking and knocking so that He, who's not evil like earthly fathers, is ever ready in His time and in His way and will to give good gifts to His children. God is to be gratefully praised. Marvelous gratitude in these first eight verses for how He sustained His people. And they're looking back on those past days and they're saying, we're so grateful for your help. That's what we ought to do. This is the way we ought to respond. Isn't this what Psalm 44, verses 1 to 8, is describing about God and His people? We've heard from our forefathers who've told us about the faithfulness of God before they went to glory. And we too, we must tell our children about the character of this same God and His covenant love for His people. And it's all grand and wonderful and encouraging, supporting. And then we have a contrast. Look at the first two words of verse 9. But you. But you. We go from gratitude to God for past help to beginning here in verse 9, groping for answers from God for present help future help. Look at verse 9. Clear contrast. But you, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Well, this is a different picture, isn't it? And you know, it seems as though sometimes in our lives, these moments of great triumph and great hope and help and the easy flowing gratitude that comes from our lips for what our God has done seemingly can change in a moment. Some disaster, some challenge, trial, some situation that seems so quickly to go downhill. But you, you've rejected us, disgraced us. You you went with our forefathers out to battle, and they told us of all your exploits. And now we're going out to battle ourselves, and you're not here. You're not around. Verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. They've taken some of us as their POWs. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, verse 12 says, demanding no high price for them. It's as though you're willing to sell them into some kind of bondage at a price that would make somebody laugh. Boy, he sure doesn't think enough of them to sell them into bondage at that price. Verse 13, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors. Notice these words here, taunt, the derision and scorn of those around us. Taunting, derision, scorn. 
And then maybe even the lowest of the low, verse 14, you've made us a byword among the nations. We know what byword means, don't we? You've made us of no account. We're nothing special. We're, in fact, lower than any of those to whom you've ever said, I'm going to bless this group as over against every other group. And now they're saying, we don't see the blessing. We don't see the honor. We don't see the choice. We don't see the protection. We don't see the help. And the lowest of all possible lows, a laughing stock among the peoples. We're a byword and a laughing stock. Ha, ha, ha. Where is your God now? Those are those taunts. Do you remember that's precisely what happened with Jesus on the cross? Do you remember those Roman soldiers were taunting the Son of God? If you're really the Son of God, come down off the cross, save yourself. Taunting, laughing stock. All day long, the king says, my disgrace, verse 15, is before me. Can't get it out of my mind. And shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Again, do you see those, those inflammatory words, the taunter? the reviler, the enemy, the avenger? I mean, does it seem to happen that quickly? I mean, they they were just praising him. They were just giving him gratitude. They were saying, "Here's here's the history of Israel. It was going so good. And now it couldn't possibly go any worse. Gerald Wilson in his psalm commentary writes this, God is entirely able to deliver and save his people. That is why the suffering that the believing community experiences creates such a dilemma. The problem is not a lack of power, but why God has failed to act. As a result of this way of thinking, God is seen as the active force behind all the woe that has come upon His people. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt, as these believers did, that heaven seems sometimes so utterly silent? Why doesn't He do something? You could change this in a moment. Where's the protection? Where's the help? There's no answer. Every time I pray, it seems to just bounce off the ceiling and come right back down in a thud. Well, one of the things that we should do, I think, first and foremost, when that happens, is, of course, to zero in on what have I done? Is there sin in my life? Is there something I've done to deserve this? Any other reasons which I myself have brought on the bullseye of my life for the enemy? That's a fair question. But in this case, according to verse 17, it isn't true that the Israelites in this moment are finding great difficulty in defeat by the enemy because of their own sins. Look at verse 17. All this, notice this, all of it, everything that's happening, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. Now you know, and I know, that through the history of Israel, so often it was because they forgot their God, right? It was because they weren't trusting Him, they weren't believing Him. It's because they just went off half-cocked themselves, saying, we don't need you, we can win our own battles. And then they were taught a valuable lesson, right? The sin of pride, of arrogance, of boastfulness. But it doesn't appear to be any of that here. We've not forgotten you, verse 17. And 
We have not been false to your covenant. We didn't break it. We didn't break the covenant. I mean, at least in this time and in this season, whenever it was, we don't know in the history of Israel where this particular situation was, who they were fighting, what all the issues were, but apparently they're coming before their God and saying, we don't think it's because of the sin of our people. Verse 18, our heart is not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet, verse 19, you have broken us in the place of jackals. Where where are jackals? Where can they be found? How about the wilderness? How about in the dark places where the jackals hide and then they come out at night, right? To avenge. Where? We're like those, those rascals, the jackals, and covered us, verse 19, with the shadow of death. We're we're almost gone. We're almost completely routed by the enemy. Verse 20, if, if we had forgotten the name of our God, Yahweh, or spread out our hands. Maybe that's a phrase that means prayer. Uh, uh, or, or spread out our hands in prayer to a foreign God. Would not God discover this? In other words, if we were guilty of, of leaving the right God, the sovereign God, Yahweh God, the one who had delivered us in battles before, including our forefathers, and maybe even we ourselves in an earlier day of our lifetime. But it's not so. We haven't prayed to a different God. We haven't left the allegiance of Yahweh. If we had, verse 21 says, wouldn't God discover this? Sure he would. Why? For he knows the secrets of the heart. They're even now appealing, Lord, examine our hearts. You you alone have the omniscience to know what we're saying, and we haven't forgotten you. We haven't broken your covenant. Now we're asking, because we know that you know, why are we in this mess? Verse 22, yet for your sake... We are killed all the day long. That's what happens when you're on the losing end of the battle. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Just one by one by one by one are being decimated, killed. Somebody's dad. Somebody's granddad. They're all being slaughtered like sheep. And they're not blaming God. They're not becoming bitter or angry with the Lord. His his people are simply trying to come to grips with the reasons for heaven's apparent silence. I know you've been there. I've been there. You pray, you pray, you pray. You ask God. And there, there is the appearance of silence. God isn't bringing chastisement to us because of our sin, if it's not because we're sinning and we're straying from God and His ways, what is it? Why is it, God, you're now withholding your power and your protection? Is it arbitrary? Maybe they're tempted to think that. Is God capricious in His dealings with us? Is it no wonder then? That God's people cry out in lament. Look at verse 23. Awake! Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Well, they know the Lord of Israel never, what? Never sleeps nor slumbers. They know that. They know that in their heart. But their experience gives them the sense that he's sleeping that he's unconcerned, unaffected by their plight. The end of verse 23, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. 
Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Those are, my friends, real prayers. Real frustrations, real concern, legitimate confusion. Why? You're our God. You helped our fathers. What about us? We're afflicted. We're oppressed. Verse 25, for our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. We're almost done in. You can't get as low as the belly on the dust, right? Verse 26, rise up. Rise up. This is the title of our message. Yahweh, come to our help. Help us. Help! Exclamation point. Redeem us. Deliver us for the sake of your steadfast love. For the sake of your, your covenant love. I mean, there are seasons in a believer's life where it is not the case that God is chastising us for our sin, disciplining us for our waywardness. No, There are times and seasons when God is working to refine us and to shape us and to mold us with the testing power of suffering. And we ought to endure. Did you realize that this is precisely the lesson that Paul the Apostle learned? Because in Psalm 44, does it not say in verse 22, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Is that familiar to us? Where might that be? Romans 8. Turn there with me. Romans 8. There are some times and seasons and epics and circumstances and situations in which it's not God chastising us, disciplining us because of overt sin in our lives. It is sometimes the case, maybe even many times the case, that God is testing us and we're suffering for endurance' sake. Romans 8 talks about this father of ours. We're sons of God according to verse 14. And we didn't receive, according to verse 15 of Romans 8, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And and it's in a moment like Psalm 44 that they're crying out, Abba, Father, and you know, it's even different from them than it is for us because we're a part of the new covenant in which we have so much more by way of our heavenly Father and our adoption as sons, so much more than they. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit in every single true bona fide believer that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Notice this, please don't miss it, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering. Suffering. And verse 18 continues it. For I consider that the sufferings, Paul says, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And when we don't know what to do and we don't know where to turn, and that's exactly where we were this morning in our message 
Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches hearts, he who searches hearts, I should say, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then, of course, the famous Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And part of the purposing of God is our suffering so that we could be readied for glory. And some people say, I would be rather readied for glory without the suffering, thank you. And some would say, okay, I'll experience the suffering, but don't ever leave me, Lord. Don't ever leave me forever and a day in my suffering. And perhaps they were thinking that. Certainly the Roman oppression was upon these Roman believers, and they were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And maybe they needed great encouragement. Lord, even in my suffering and the persecution and the taunts and the reviling, maybe just like those in Psalm 44, don't leave me. That covenant love that ends Psalm 44 and verse 26, redeem us for the sake of your covenant love, your steadfast love. And Paul, I think, is thinking about steadfast love, about the covenant faithfulness of God, about how God will never leave them and He will always love them. And he remembers in Romans 8 these very words. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say, Romans 8, 31, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, apparently some in Psalm 44 were bringing charges against the people of God. They were taunting and reviling, and it was scorn and derision. And the suffering was real. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, they have through human history, Paul. It is God who justifies, is Paul's answer. Who is to condemn? Well, so many do of Christians. Paul's answer, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the Spirit is, the Son is, in their intercessory ministry, showing us that they love us. Therefore, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Think of Psalm 44. Because Paul does, as it is written, For your sake, Psalm 44, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He was thinking of that very psalm. And what's his response? No. No. In all these things, even those who are being killed all the day long, even those who are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, no. In all these things, in fact, in everything, all the more, we are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, amen and amen. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, even the believer's suffering. And if you're suffering, if you're suffering trials of various kind, 
God will work to test you and refine you and progressively conform you to the very image of Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens to us in this life, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we pray on. We continue to pray. And we continue to ask God. And we continue to knock on heaven's door. And it's not capricious, and it's not arbitrary, and it's not a lack of love, and it's a God who is wiser than we are, who knows when the suffering has done its work. And then the blessing shall come. It could be the blessing on the battlefield. It could be the blessing in the home. It could be the blessing in the household of God. It could be blessing anywhere and everywhere. And so we pray. Why don't we do that now? Bow your heads with me. Our gracious and loving and sovereign and wise God, we are not like those who grieve, who have no hope. We're not like those who think you're a vengeful and wicked and angry God who does things arbitrarily and capriciously? Not so. We say it. We think it. We pray it. Just like we sang earlier. Like a river glorious, every joy or trial falleth from above traced upon our dial, our life, by the Son of love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as He promised perfect peace and rest. Heavenly Lord, God Almighty, when we don't know the answers and when it appears that the heavens are like brass, we ask that you would sustain us even when we haven't seen the answer, even when we're suffering. We assume that you are silent because you're molding and shaping and fine-tuning and repairing and refining us so that we would come forth as gold. So we pray and we continue to pray. And we pray fervently and we pray continuously and we ask and we beseech And when the long night is over, we will be perfectly conformed to the image of your Son. And when we're trusting you wholly, we find you wholly true. May this spark our prayers for our brothers and sisters, even tonight, through our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.